All right, well, please uh, open your Bibles to Lamentations. It's in the Old Testament, right after Jeremiah, in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Last week, I gave an overview of this book, and I introduced an idea that may have been surprising to you. Uh, The idea is that poetry is important. Uh, Poetry gets a bad rap among some people, uh, like myself. Uh, You might think it's boring, it's hard to understand, it's too subjective, too emotional. Um, You might prefer instead clear, logical, objective facts to poetry. Uh, But we saw last week that poetry and art in general are gifts from God that he has given to us, that they're important precisely because they're so emotional. That we as human beings need more than just facts. We need not just to know the truth, we need to be moved by it. So we need things that speak both to our hearts and to our heads. And for that, God has given us art. So that was the big application last week as we looked at Lamentations, was just don't neglect art, don't neglect poetry, don't despise it, it's a good gift. And we base that application off the simple fact that Lamentations exists. Just the fact that Lamentations exists. If you remember the context, uh, for 40 years, God had given prophecies through Jeremiah to the people of Judah. And for 40 years, Jeremiah had said to them, repent, you've turned away from God, you've sinned, judgment is coming. And if you don't repent, God will bring the judgment he has promised. And for 40 years, the people did not listen. And then in 587 BC, the Babylonians did attack and they destroyed the city. People died of starvation, they died from the sword, they destroyed the temple, they burned it to the ground, and they took people into captivity into Babylon. It was total destruction. And the remarkable thing that we saw last week was simply that in response to this great event, this terrible tragedy, worse than anything that had happened to them up until that point, the next thing God did is inspire Jeremiah to write five poems about these events. So in the aftermath of tragedy, God gave poetry which tells us that it's important, that these poems, this art, is important. So we don't want to neglect these. We want to study them. That's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, try to learn from these poems. Uh, Now, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see a a lavender-colored insert. Uh, That's a bonus for you. I I mentioned last week that these poems in the original Hebrew are acrostic poems, which means that each line or each stanza begins with a new letter in the alphabet. Now, no Bibles have tried to, do, to translate it that way because it's just really, really hard. Um, but there have been different individuals that have tried it. So I, want, I just wanted to give you this as a reference. This is an example of someone who's worked really hard to try to translate Lamentations 1 while still preserving the acrostic nature of it. So that's something you can look at on your own. We're still going to look at uh, the ESV today as we do our study. Um, we're going to be looking at chapter 1. And, uh, and as I read this, I actually want to invite Jamie to come up to read it with me for a very specific reason. So come up here, because uh, you'll notice as we're reading this that there are two voices in Lamentations chapter one. Okay, there's the voice of the observer, um, that, that's what I'll, I'll be reading, and then there's the voice of the sufferer, which is what Jamie will be reading. Um, and so the, the chapter is divided roughly into half, and you'll notice this, it, it'll be more obvious to you as we read it out loud, but it's right there in the passage that you have these two voices, uh, and they kind of trade off in their in their talking. So, without further ado, the Lamentations, chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people! How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations! She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. 
She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire. Into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint, all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me, because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves. In the house it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble, and they were glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you, and deal with them as you have dealt with me. Because of all my transgressions, 
for my groans are many and my heart is faint. Amen. Well, every time I try to preach poetry, I say something like this, we're about to kill something beautiful. Okay. It's like catching a butterfly and pinning it to the board and looking at it really closely and trying to figure out what, what is every part of this butterfly and what makes it pretty. Okay. So in, in an act of analyzing it, you, you kill it. But I hope that by looking at this bit by bit and understanding it more, in the end, we can let it fly and we will appreciate more deeply uh, what this poem is about. So I'm going to have two parts to this sermon. The first is going to be analysis. We're going to walk through line by line, make sure we understand what it says, and then just the question, how does this move you? Okay, and I'm going to give a couple suggestions for how it may be moving you, but we'll just let God do that work in us today. So as you just saw, based on the way that Jamie and I read this, the chapter divides pretty neatly into two halves based on who's talking. There's an observer who's watching what's happening, and there's a sufferer who's experiencing it and, and exclaiming in first person what she has been through. So let's look at it in these two halves uh, first, the observer, verses 1 through 11. You notice this book begins with the word how. That's actually the first word in Hebrew. It's the title of the book in Hebrew. It's not called Lamentation. It's called How. Uh, and it has a couple meanings to it, right? It says it's how, as in, uh, alas, how lonely is the city? This, can you believe what has happened? How bad is this? But also it has this sense of a question, a question that runs throughout the whole book and runs through our suffering as well. How? How could this happen? And what has happened exactly? Well, the observer tells us, first of all, that what's happened is there's been a great reversal. So verses 1 through 3, he goes through this great reversal. Ever since Babylon came and destroyed the city, things have been upside down. Everything is reversed. So verse 1 talks about this reversal in status. It says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. So the city used to be full of people, now it's lonely. It says, how like a widow she has become, she who is great among the nations. Jerusalem used to be this great city, this world-class city, New York, London, Los Angeles, and now it is a widow, lonely. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Jerusalem used to rule, and now it's in slavery, this great reversal of status. Verse 2 then talks about this reversal of relationship. It says, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. The city used to have lots of lovers, which tells you a little bit about what kind of widow this wife was, what kind of wife this widow was, I should say. She used to have all these lovers, but now no one cares for her. So this, this wife was not a faithful wife. She was an adulterous wife, a cheating wife. And if you've read much of the Old Testament at all, you know what this is talking about here. You know, God often refers to his people as his bride. And throughout uh, the Old Testament, you know, God has made this covenant with his people, uh, like a marriage covenant. He expects uh, his people to be faithful to him, to not chase after other gods, not go after other nations. But of course, you know that the, the God's people were not faithful. They did chase after other lovers. They made alliances with other nations instead of trusting in God's strength. They worshipped other gods instead of believing in their God. And so over the years, there had been all these other lovers. But now, those relationships are reversed. 
When Jerusalem was prosperous and successful, all the other nations loved her. They came to her. They, uh, they engaged in uh, trade with her. They made alliances with her. But now that Babylon has defeated the city, her lovers are nowhere to be found. Her friends, her so-called friends, are now enemies. A reversal of relationship. But then verse 3, you see this reversal of history as well. Verse 3 says, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. So she's gone into exile. The great story in the history of the people up to this point was of Exodus, where they used to be in slavery and hard affliction and hard labor, and God heard their cry and delivered them out of slavery into their land. But now God has taken them out of their land into slavery. It says she dwells now among the nations and finds no resting place. God had given the promised land as a resting place for the people. They'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they found rest. But now God says, no, you're out of the land, and you will have no rest. Her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. When she entered the land, she drove out the other people. But now the other nations have driven her out. So this tragedy has brought a great reversal. Everything is upside down for the people. It's also brought a great loss. You keep reading, you read about the losses that the nation has experienced. Verse 4 talks about the loss of God's presence. It says, The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. Now when it says the word Zion here, this is the first time the city is named explicitly, and it's, it's important that he calls it Zion and not Jerusalem. They're both names for the same place, but they have different connotations. Zion is more referring to Jerusalem as the religious center, sort of like we could talk about Los Angeles, or we could talk about Hollywood, right? Both talk about the same area, right? But Hollywood implies, you know, we're talking about the entertainment industry within Los Angeles. Okay, when you talk about Zion, you're talking about the temple, the worship of God that happens in Jerusalem. And they said the roads are empty. The roads are crying because there's no one coming anymore to the festivals because there's no temple anymore. The very center of the worship of God has been destroyed. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan because the temple has been destroyed. God has left the city. It's a great loss. But he's not the only one. The people have left too. Verse 5 speaks of the loss of God's people. It says her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. Her children have gone away. Now that last line, her children have gone away, that word for children is a word for young children, like suckling infants, like toddlers, like really tiny kids, similar to how we might say uh, our babies, right? So her babies have gone away. They took my babies, my special, precious little ones. Now, it's probably not saying specifically that they only took babies into captivity. Okay? But in this metaphor, right, the, the Jerusalem, Zion, is the woman. And so the children of Zion are the people. Okay? Who are the babies? Who's, who's Jerusalem's babies? It's the people that live there, her special ones, her, her children. The people of Jerusalem have been taken away into captivity. So God's gone. The people are gone. What a great loss. And with that comes the loss of glory. Verse 6 says, For from the daughter of Zion all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. 
Her majesty's gone. There's nothing glorious about the city anymore. You would never say, hey, come check out my city. It's a great city. It's not a great city anymore. It's been destroyed. God is gone. The people are gone. There's nothing to recommend it. Even the princes, the chief among the people, the, the best and the brides have nothing. They can't even find food for themselves. All the glory's been lost. And with that comes great shame. So in verses 7 through 11, great shame. It says, Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wonderings all the precious things that were hers from days of old. So we remember the glory days. Used to be great, not now. What happens now? When her people fell in the hand of the foe, there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. So after she was defeated, after the city was defeated, what happened? The enemies gloated. They mocked. It's very shameful to be defeated in battle. It leaves you feeling embarrassed. If you doubt that, just think out how hard it is when our country's defeated, like even in the Olympics, right? We don't like it when another country beats us in the Olympics, let alone in a war. <coughs> to be defeated in a war is shameful. It's the shame of defeat. There's also the shame of sin and really of her sin being exposed now to the world. Everybody sees what Jerusalem has done. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. So she has sinned, and that sin has now been, been seen by everyone. They've seen the punishment that God has brought for her sin, and the filthiness is on display for everyone to see. Okay, now, now we've got to be clear about this. We'll probably say this again and again as we go through this book. In this particular situation, there's a very direct line between the sin of this people and the punishment that God has brought. Okay, it's been 40 years of Jeremiah giving this prophecy, and now it's finally come, and there's been centuries before that of God saying, if you disobey the covenant, there will be consequences. So a very clear line here. That's not always the case in our lives. It's not always true that when you experience a particular suffering, you can draw a clear line from here back to some sin that you did. That is the, now, this is the consequence of that sin. Okay, so if you get in a car accident, you shouldn't be thinking, oh, this is because I lied yesterday. Right? Or if you get sick, oh, this is because I you know, cheated on my taxes or, or whatever it is. Right? So that's not, that that's, that's not how it works always. But in this case, there is this clear connection. God has made it very clear for decades. And so she sees now this sin has been exposed. This, this uh, punishment that has come on the city is a clear uh, proof that Jerusalem has sinned. And everyone has seen it. They've seen her nakedness. She can't hide it anymore. Verse 9 says her uncleanness was in her skirts. Even her clothing is dirty. We might say something like this. We might put it this way. She soiled her pants. It's filthy. It's disgusting. There's no hiding it. She's ashamed. Now at this point, at the end of verse 9, uh, the woman breaks in. The, the sufferer breaks in. It's like she's been standing there all this time waiting as the observer describes what has happened and she just can't take it anymore. And she cries out, O oh Lord, behold my affliction for the enemy has triumphed. She wants to say, she wants to share her story about what's going on, how bad this feels. Enough of the third-party explanation. Let me tell you firsthand. But before she gets to say her piece, the observer jumps in again and says a few more things about what has happened. 
In verse 10, he speaks about the shame of being violated. He says, the enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. He speaks of the Babylonians entering the temple, stealing the most precious treasures that belong to the worship of God. These heathens who weren't allowed to even enter the temple in the best of circumstances have forced their, ways, forced their way in to the sacred space and they've taken the precious treasures of Lady Jerusalem. She was violated. And even though it's the Babylonians doing something wrong, she feels shame because of this violation. And then in verse 11, there's the shame of just having nothing all her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. The famine's left people impoverished, and they still have stuff. They still have trinkets. They still have gold. But what good is it? They can't eat it. It's no, they have nothing. There's no food. They can't even save their own lives. They don't even have enough food to survive. And that's shameful. It feels shameful to not be able to provide for yourself. And so the observer looks at what has happened and he reports there's been a great reversal. There's been a great loss and the city is cloaked in great shame. And so the suffering woman cries out again, God, look, see how bad things are. And as she begins her first person account of the suffering, she does three things. She accuses God, she defends God, and she asks God for help. So it starts in verse 12, where the suffering woman accuses God. And remember, as we're going through this, the suffering woman is not just a woman, she is representing the city, Jerusalem. And so what does she say in verse 12? Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. She's saying, God did this. This is something we've got to wrestle with as we go through this book and something we have to wrestle with as we go through our lives and experience suffering. God did this. God did this. God brought this tragedy into my life. This pain that I'm feeling is because of God. She makes it quite clear that that's her view. She says, the Lord inflicted this on me. God hurt me. Verse 13, she says, God treated me as if I were an enemy. Okay, listen to what God has done to her. From on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint, all the day long. This is what Babylon did, right? This is, this is what the Babylonians did. They set fire to the city. They set nets. They captured people. They beat them up. They left them faint. Yet the woman says, this is what God did to me. He treated me like this, like I am an enemy. Verse 14, she says, he's the one who sent me into slavery. It's this description of, of being put into slavery. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hands they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. Okay, he's enslaving the people. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into their hands. God did this. He put the yoke on me. He put me in slavery. He did this. Verse 15, she says, God killed my babies. God killed my young men, my young women. 
The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. God did it. Yes, the Babylonians did it, but she says, no, God did this. Verse 16, she says, this is why I cry. Verse 16, for these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit, my children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. She says, this is why I'm crying, because God did this. Because God attacked me like an enemy. He sent me into slavery. He killed my children, and there's no one to comfort me. That's why I cry. And it may be, in this point, we're supposed to see that she is crying. She can't speak anymore. She's, she's weeping. And in verse 17, the observer jumps in one more time and makes commentary. He says, Zion stretches out her hands. So she's, she's like a, a, a broken-down woman at the side of the road who's experienced all this loss. She's been trying to get anybody to listen to her as they walk by. This is why I weep. All this sorrow has happened, and she's just crying. She can't talk anymore. She stretches out her hands. Do you see me? but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. So she accuses God. She says, you did this. But then in her final speech, she gathers herself again, and she turns around and she defends God. She doesn't take back what she said, but she acknowledges that somehow God was right to do what he did. So verse 18, she says, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. She says, The Lord is right. This is not a surprise. This is not coming out of nowhere. I was warned. He told me for years and years and years that if I rebelled against him, that I would experience this sort of discipline. And now it's happened. And it's, I can't say he's wrong. It still hurts. It's still terrible. Verse 19, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. These people I trusted in, instead of God, they, they failed me. God said this would happen. And then she ends with a cry for help. So she accuses God, she defends him, and then she just cries out for help. Verse 20, Look, O Lord, for I'm in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it's like death. She says, I know I deserve this. I know I've been rebellious. I get it. God, help. Help. This is terrible. You were right to do what you did, but please stop. Please deliver me. In verse 21 and 22, she then turns to the enemies, the ones who have perpetrated this evil. She says, God, what you've done to me, because I deserved it, now do to them, because they also deserve it. Verse 21, they heard my groaning, yet there was no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad you have done it. You've brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. God, I'm hurting. I believe that you're just. These people have done evil. Now get them. And then she ends with a groan. My groans are many. My heart is faint. 
and she falls back into silence. That's what the poem's about. Okay, we've analyzed it, we've looked at what does it say, what's it talking about. But poetry's not meant to be analyzed, it's meant to be experienced. It's meant to live, to move you, to, to, to take your emotions through something and bring you out changed on the other side. So how does this move you? Now, I can't dictate that. That's kind of the beauty and frustration of art, right? I can't, I can't say this is how you are supposed to experience this poem. But I can give you some suggestions. I'm going to give one suggestion for you if you're reading this more as a sufferer and one if you're reading it more as an observer. Okay, so how might this poem move you if you come to it as a sufferer? Um, so if you come to this not as the dispassionate observer seeing bad things happen to other people, but that you identify with this woman, with this person who's experienced great tragedy. If that's you, what could this poem do for you? I hope one thing that it does for you is gives you the freedom to talk about your pain. I really hope it does. I hope it gives you the freedom to talk about your pain. Um, what I mean by that is there are, uh, there are people who have gone through situations like this, this, this woman, this personified city, like the people who, who went through what happened in Jerusalem. People even today are going through things like this. There's bombing happening in Syria right now where people are going through things like this. And maybe you in your life have experienced a, a, a trauma, a, a violent crime, or PTSD from being in the armed services or something else. Uh, maybe you've experienced abuse or neglect or just the sudden death of someone you really loved. Or maybe a close friend betrayed you. Like, you've got a deep wound, right? You're all, you're, many of you are old enough in this church. You've, you've got these, right? It's not unique. You live long enough. Suffering happens. So what do you do with that? If you've suffered like this, you read what this woman's saying, and you go, yep, I know what you're talking about. I've felt that pain. I have these feelings. I've been angry at God. I am angry at God. I have deep hurt. I feel alone, like no one's listening to me. The chances are good that you have these feelings, but the chances are also good that you don't feel like you can share them with anybody, especially in the church. Because people in general don't like to hear other people suffering. And so you probably censor yourself, say, I don't want to bother that person. I don't want to make them feel bad, too. And Christians in particular can feel this pressure to keep up appearances, to make things, keep things light, act like we're all happy here, like life's put together. And so the church, this community that should be the place of greatest healing and hope can become the worst place for these sorts of feelings and pain because we feel this pressure to be happy, to be joy of the Lord all the time. That's the experience of a woman named Rachel Den Hollander. You may have heard her name. She was the former gymnast who was the first person to accuse Larry Nasser of abuse in this latest horrific abuse scandal. Um, you may not know that she's a conservative evangelical Christian like us. And she was interviewed by Christianity Today about her experience in leading this charge of talking about abuse. And so Christianity Today asked her this question. They said, in your impact statement, that is the statement she read in court for everybody and for her abuser, 
said, you mentioned that it took you a long time to reveal your own abuse with other people. Was church included in that? She said, yes. Church is one of the least safe places to acknowledge abuse because the way it is counseled is more often than not damaging to the victim. There is an abhorrent lack of knowledge for the damage and devastation that sexual assault brings. It is with deep regret that I say the church is one of the worst places to go for help. It's a hard thing to say because I'm, very, I'm a very conservative evangelical, but that is the truth. There are very, very few who have ever found true help in the church. Okay, now, now I don't know. I'm trying to listen to Rachel on this one. She's got the experience here. And she's saying the church is not a safe place for people to admit their pain, that it is one of the worst places to go for help. I'd like to change that. And I think we can change that by empowering those of you who are suffering to talk about your pain here, right? Like if you're in church and you're talking about bad things you've been through, like, and you get pushback from somebody, that doesn't sound very Christian, you shouldn't complain, you shouldn't accuse God. I want to point you to Lamentations 1. Say, this is scripture. This is God saying, here's how you talk when you've been through a devastating experience. You're not being sinful to talk like this. You're not being sinful to express your pain and to talk about how angry you are at God and how bad things are. You're being biblical. Being biblical. Lamentations is in the Bible in part to encourage everyone who suffers that you can talk like this. You don't have to pretend that your pain isn't real. You don't have to pretend that you're not mad at God. You don't have to keep the stiff upper lip and just say things like, all things work together for good. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now those are true verses. Those are true verses. But so is, is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. So let this person give you the courage to speak up. I think this is part of the the power of what's happening with the Me Too movement that's going on these days. Um, This is what started in the aftermath of the Harvey Weinstein sexual abuse scandals, as, as people began to stand up and say, hey, not, not just those people, it didn't just happen to them, it happened to me too. And thousands and thousands of women have stood up and said, no, I have also been abused. I have also had these painful experiences. Now what's going on? Is it just like over the last couple months, all of a sudden there's been tons of new abuse happening and people talking about it? No. It's that for years and years and years, no one felt like they could say anything about it. They were ashamed of what had happened. They felt there would be more shame if they talked about it. But just the simple act of someone standing up and saying, no, this happened, and then another person standing up and saying, yes, I had that experience too, and me too, and me too. Now people feel like it's okay to talk about their pain, and many people in talking about it are finding healing. And so it may be that Lamentations 1 is your me too moment or you've suffered greatly but largely in silence because you didn't think you could talk about it in church. And I'm not just talking about women here. Men experience trauma too, and men may be worse at talking about these things. Maybe you feel embarrassed to admit that your tears have been your food all night long. 
But if you've been suffering, listen to this courageous voice, this woman who will not be silenced, and let her voice give you courage to say, me too, me too. You have the freedom to talk about your pain. Now what if you're an observer? The person on the outside, seeing the suffering of others but not going through it yourself. I hope this poem moves you to listen to those who are suffering. So when they find that courage to say, me too, and they share their story about what's happening, or even you, you see the news story, or hear what's going on in other parts of the world, that you don't turn away. You don't shut them up. You don't say, please stop making me feel bad with all of your pain. But you move towards them, and you listen. The unavoidable message of chapter one is the loneliness of pain. It's so lonely to be in this place of pain. You hear this refrain five times in this chapter. She has no one to comfort her. Verse two, she has none to comfort her. Verse nine, she has no comforter. Verse 16, a comforter is far from me. Verse 17, none to comfort her. Verse 21, no one to comfort me. Five times. She's utterly alone. She has no one to comfort her. She just wants someone to look and to see what has happened. Three times she cries out to God, look. Verse 9, O Lord, behold my affliction. Just see it. Just look. Verse 11, look, Lord, and see. Look and see what's going on. Verse 20, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. And in verse 12, look and see to the passersby. Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow. What does she want? What does this person in great pain want? She wants to not be alone. She wants somebody to see how bad things are and to not cross the other side of the street and run the other direction, but to move towards her. She reaches out her hand and say, I see, I see what you're going through. And that's your job if you're the observer of pain. If you're not the one in pain yourself, it's your job, as someone who follows the example of lamentations, that when you hear someone just unloading their situation on you, all of their sorrows, your job is to listen. To listen. To see. You might say, well, I, I don't know about that. Isn't that a job for a counselor? I don't know how to fix it. They tell me all this stuff, and I don't know how to fix it. I'm just going to feel all anxious, like I should fix it. You don't have to fix it. The person crying. No, nobody could have fixed what happened to this person. Nobody, you're not going to just rebuild the temple and build the city walls and bring the kids back from exile and say, everything's fine, I can fix it. Here's, here's what we do. Let's make a plan. Let's work the plan. Nobody could fix this. She didn't want somebody to fix it. She wanted a friend. She wanted somebody to see to hear, to be with her. That's all you have to do. You can fix that problem. You can fix the problem of loneliness by moving towards the person who is suffering and being their friend and staying with them and hearing them and seeing what they're going through. She just wants someone to comfort her. So if you're the observer, let this poem move you to listen to those who are suffering. Be a safe space for a friend. 
Now, it may be that this poem moves you in other ways. And then as you come back to it again and again, it moves you in different ways every time. And that's great. That's fine. But I hope that at least you see that if you are suffering, you have the freedom to share your pain. And if you are an observer, you have the obligation to listen. Let's pray. Jesus, as we close this prayer, I'd be remiss to not mention that you are both the greatest sufferer and the greatest observer that we've ever seen. You know what it's like better than anyone to go through the darkest night of the soul, and you hear every single one of our cries for help, and you never leave us. So help us to emulate you in both aspects, to be free to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But also turn to those who are suffering and have compassion on them and be a friend. Jesus, help us, first of all, to be reconciled to you and to bear that fruit in our lives. Um, Be with us, in Jesus' name, amen.